This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid. I'm a former Egyptologist. I come from a family where there was never any Egyptologist or, in fact, any scholar. I come from a family of rulers, politicians on the one hand, and traders on the other side. Being an Egyptologist is the odd thing. My father was an engineer. I grew up in the technology world. My first job at the age of 12 was in the consultancy of my father, which was called at the time Chemical Development Corporation. It's a big leap from Egyptology to technology, but not so much, because even as an Egyptologist, for example, I'm one of of the few Egyptologists in the world who has actually baked Egyptian blue. I've also created a blockchain solution for certification of documents. I have my own company called Projectis, and I'm very happy to say that... Our guest for this episode is Dr. Christian de Vartavan, a distinguished Egyptologist who wrote 10 books on Egyptology and had 40 scientific discoveries so far. He's also a technologist and blockchain and AI expert who regularly sits in the UK Parliament with peers and MPs advising the UK government on these new technologies. Archaeology, like science, evolves in leaps and returns and twists, goes backwards and forwards. That's the nature of knowledge acquisition and, in fact, of human history. There's not a linear evolution of how civilizations evolve. It's a back-and-forth movement, constant, in fact, between nations. We covered the power of blockchain technology in shaping civilizations today. Civilizations right now should consider and think in global terms. There is no more boundaries. You could be in Jakarta, you could be across the planet. It doesn't matter. Intelligence is distributed. And this is what those who favor blockchain and love blockchain like it because it decentralizes everything. Crypto and blockchain clearly remarkable in terms of technology and the complexity of it and the idea. We also talked about regulation of cutting-edge technology like blockchain and AI, some of the topics that Christian spends a lot of time thinking and advising governments on. It's exactly what is happening in the EU right now. They produced this several thousands of pages of regulations before Europe has even one single AI capable of being a rival to those in Silicon Valley. They put literally the carriage in front of the ox, as the French would say, and because three or four thousand pages of text and then nothing to show even the CEOs of large companies are saying to Brussels, you're completely mad. You're destroying the possibility for us to do anything. This and a lot more on Egyptology, civilization, AI, blockchain, and new technologies coming right up on this episode. One of the biggest feats of innovation were clearly the pyramids. Pyramids and how they were built is a big topic in Egyptology. Given happened, traces of some of those technological knowledge remained. All right, brilliant. Christian, thanks a lot for being on the Innovation Civilized podcast. What a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. And Mo Harris, welcome as well. Hello. Brilliant. Let's get cracking then. Christian, you've lived a long life in terms of very eclectic experiences. You start off a year with Egyptology, writing 10 different books on like different discoveries, and then you moved on to artificial intelligence. Can you quickly give us a, your background? I'm sure I did a summary, but it doesn't do any justice. Well, I'm a former Egyptologist. I come from a family where there was never any Egyptologist or, in fact, any scholar. I come from a family of rulers, politicians on the one hand, and traders on the other side. So being an Egyptologist is the odd thing. My father was an engineer, and I grew up in the technology world. My first job at the age of 12 was in the consultancy of my father, which was called at the time Chemical Development Corporation. It was about oil and catalysts. This is how I got my first paycheck, not as an Egyptologist, but as a, someone who was actually compiling numbers and showing mm. secretaries that they were wrong. That is what my father was very happy to show them that the 12 year old <laughs> calculate better than them. It was not, you know, entirely pleasant for me. But, but the fact is, yes, I grew up in this atmosphere of engineering. We're also the souvenir of my grandfather, who was a politician. And before that, we had a long history in the Ottoman Empire and Karabakh, which is in the middle of the war now. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Now I've been an Egyptologist for I think from the age of before five, I was four, so I'm 58. Imagine 54 years. Well, I stopped when I was 52, and I've been, yeah, 48 years in Egyptology, very young, and I got world press when I was 23 and many more discoveries. But I'm jumping a bit there. Maybe you want me to ask, you want to ask me. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Today, you're doing more of artificial intelligence and AI and blockchain with the UK government. Is that your scope? Yeah, I have my own company called Projectis. In fact, Projectis until now was Projectis Consultants. 
And I'm very happy to say that literally as from the past few days, and particularly today, it's projective <laughs> technology. I've actually created my own blockchain myself today. I finished it. You're the first one to learn because my partners don't even know. With my partner, I've also created a blockchain solution for certification of documents. It's been coded by another company and it's going to be sold by my main partner who is MarketWit. And this is we're waiting to see our first client. It's a big leap from Egyptology to technology, but not so much because even as an Egyptologist, for example, I'm one of the mm. few Egyptologists in the world who has actually baked Egyptian blue. Egyptian blue mm. is the first, as far as we know, synthetic process invented by humanity. But basically, what is it? It's a pigment. You can find it in a natural state in only two places in the world, as far as I know. One is the Vesuvio in Italy, and the other one is a Mexican volcano. In its natural form, it's called cuprorevite, very rare mineral. You probably never have heard about it. It's extremely even difficult for someone who collects minerals to find bits of it. You can actually create cuprorevite by baking malachite with soda. When you put the mixture of this in an oven, it goes in green and comes out blue. And it's an extraordinary process. How the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, discovered this technology more than three or 4,000 years ago is a total mystery because the temperature needs to be very high, constant. Mm. And how mm. do you achieve this with clay ovens is magical. It, you can imagine like in Japan, they were mastered. Like in Japan, you can have cloisonné vases, which require an immense knowledge, an immense capacity mm. to master the elements, to bake ancient Egyptian blue with a kiln and some fire made out of base wood. is an extraordinary achievement, really. I suppose, Christian, one of the interesting things about the ancient world is the technology or the sort of hidden technologies, the sort of Greek fire, all yeah. this sort of stuff. What are some of the technologies? Obviously, you mentioned one there, but in ancient Egypt, the building, the engineering, yeah. the astronomy, what are some of the technologies or sciences that there's evidences for that kind of really, really impress you about them? Well, as I said, Egyptian blue is historically the oldest and first synthetic process. You just mentioned the Greek fire, which in French is called Feugrejois, where the secret of which was kept for a long time because it gave the Byzantine army an edge. It was a terrible weapon, actually. It's a fire. It, it was a, a sort of bitumen that would actually burn in the sea and even on the water. I mean, it damages it would cause. Everything and, was and about war back then. Then there was the distillation. Distillation, the Sumerian possibly invented it. I've discovered myself, and I've never published it, that in fact, ancient Egyptian did it 1,000 years earlier than we think. Distillation, as I said, the Roman used it and the Egyptians used it. But I think, I can't remember what the earliest date for it is, but I've actually understood it was used by ancient Egyptian at least 1,000 years before Roman time. Well, I suppose maybe just another question. Are there any theories among archaeologists or people who study the ancient world about why different civilizations seem to focus on different technologies. The Greeks, the Romans, they all had technology and they all did similar things, but they all seem to have different specialisms or the culture seemed to have been obsessed with a different type of technology. Is, is there any sort of views on why that happened? Well, you know, it was a question of exchange, really. Information traveled much faster than we think. We don't realize that, you know, that Roman roads first, but, but then much before that, sea exchanges. The Phoenicians and the Greeks literally were great sailors and the Phoenicians, are said to be the first to do the circumnavigation of Africa. And it may be true until we discover something else. But it's true that the Egyptians sent expeditions to the, the land of Cold of location of which is still a matter of debate. But basically, they went beyond the fourth, fifth, and sixth cataract deep into Africa. And the fact is that there is a word for ebony. The word ebony is ancient Egyptian hebenoi. It's in mm -hmm. that. It, it's from Central Africa where you have you find the, the ebony tree. Then it was brought to Egypt where you, I read it in ancient Egyptian. Hebenoi, mm -hmm. and then passed in the Greek and then the Latin and we, we still use it today. When the technology is useful, people learn very quickly, you know, about it. And writing also, we think writing was born out of exchanges. That's the reverse actually. Writing was born out of uh, accountancy. And that connects also to blockchain. We can talk mm -hmm. about that. But uh, the fact is, uh, it was useful. They needed to calculate and record things. And if you look at the labels in Yarkompolis, uh, which are the oldest example of ancient Egyptian signs, you find them on labels for good that were put in the tombs of the pharaohs or the nobles who were buried in this area. And it's out thereafter they needed to say more about product on the label and then and the language evolved. In Schumer, for the Sumerian, mm. it's exactly the same thing. You see that language evolves from their tokens, their accounting tokens. The Sumerian state had extremely sophisticated administration and they had canals, they had goods moving on the canals, they had a very, very heavy administration like the Egyptians. And the tradition, I mean, Iraq today is somewhat different, but accountancy continues to this day in 
Egypt. In fact, a lot of people think that everything still exists in Egypt about if there is any paper concerning anything that's been recorded, it is somewhere in Egypt. It's kept, in, including Bonaparte's archives, I know, are kept in, in the corner of Cairo, unaccessible or sometimes accessible. And I've heard stories in the 80s and 90s. Everything is there. The question is to find it. That's pretty interesting, actually. And since we're talking about ancient Egypt and ancient Egyptian innovations, I guess one of the biggest feats of innovation were clearly the pyramids. And I'm sure as an Egyptologist, you spend a fair amount of your time in and around the pyramids. What do you think about the engineering techniques that were used during the building of the pyramids? Like I look at some of the engineering work that we do today and it's okay, you know, quite interesting. But this word we're talking about like thousands of years ago, imagine like them actually doing such immense feats of work. What's your take on the level of engineering prowess that the Egyptians had vis-a-vis some of the other civilizations that even occurred later than them? What do you make of that? How did they acquire that? How did they like, is that even possible? Pyramids and how they were built is a big topic in Egyptology. In fact, my first book, one which still remains unpublished, was about pyramids. I wrote it about 17, 18, and it hasn't been published for various reasons, so I know the topic quite well. Maybe after this episode. Um, yes, but <laughs> it's a debate. It's an ongoing yeah. debate. There is always someone every year, there is a pyramidologist who is not a professional, or a professional who comes with a new solution. Recently, I've heard that some of the stones of Kelpsk pyramids are in concrete. It's one of those things, and you need to be on site. You need to have professionals with precise technologies to verify what we said. The fact is, there is no definite answer, as far as I know. It's one of those topics where we need more evidence. The sure thing is that the pyramids themselves express the level of technology, the level of architectural knowledge that the ancient Egyptians had at that point. You can also verify it by simply looking at the solar bar, the one that has been activated because there are are two or three around the Pyramid of Kelps. And one thing that struck me when I visited the solar bar along the left-hand side of the Pyramid of Kelps and for which a museum was built, it was built around it, is when you look at it, and it's dated 2400 BC approximately, you understand the level of technology by nautical knowledge and mathematical knowledge that the Egyptian had reached 4,400 years ago already. It is just totally bewildering. I mean, if they are capable of building such a big sailing boat at that time, if this doesn't come, this sort of knowledge you do not acquire in five minutes. You acquire it perhaps rapidly. This is possible in one century or two, but it's certain that it, it probably comes from a long tradition of boat building mm. in ancient Egypt or somewhere else. The fact is there are traces and illusions that mm. Sumerian influences a very early period of ancient Egypt occurred. Well, that's for future Egyptologists to look at and assemble the evidence. I'm not sure if you've come across the works of Graham Hancock, who wrote a few books like yourself on this topic as well. On the note of the pyramids and the building of the pyramids, what he describes is an ancient apocalypse, an ancient civilizations, which is super highly advanced, did reside on Earth. Then some apocalyptic event happened and traces of some of those technological knowledge remained and the Egyptians simply built upon that and stuff like that. I was wondering, like, what's your sort of thoughts on this basically as well well every period has a cataclysmus or a revisionist Mm. and graham hancock is one Mm. and before him there was in at the time when i was at the institute of archaeology around in in the 80s mid 80s everybody was talking about emmanuel velikovsky who was also a cataclysmus a matter of interest and graham hancock actually validates of what velikovsky said the common point between the two is that they are not professional one is a sociologist that's graham hancock the other one was a psychanalyst the thing about not being a professional and not having been trained and spent years learning about the structure and the data concerning archaeology is that you're constantly on the edge of ignorance you don't have the right frame of mind to see the overall picture and have this specialist knowledge that makes you a professional it's not a coincidence that both of them were not trained archaeologists are we to dismiss them as easily as professional archaeologists do? I don't think so, as a matter of fact. I think it's quite healthy that some people think differently, challenge the accepted knowledge, and they shouldn't be excluded because Velikovsky, for example, was banned. He couldn't even go on the campuses of some universities. He couldn't publish when, in fact, he was one of the founders of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and he corresponded with Albert Einstein, and he was doing some good work in some areas, and he was one of the students of Freud 
etc etc but yes some professionals are intrigued by what they read which doesn't fit what they understand but also they don't have specialist knowledge to distinguish what could be fantasy and not at that point since we were talking about pyramids at that frontier you often have a pyramidologist there are many of them appearing every year who says how do you prove that it is not the aliens who built the pyramids yeah the fact is the evidence suggests that it's very unlikely that the aliens built the pyramids but they try to find correlation and finding correlation i was watching beginning of this program again just before uh, connecting just just as a matter of interest whenever he talked about egypt and flew in my airspace i could sense that he didn't know really what he was talking about and i suppose it's the same for indonesia and java and whatever but the fact is he actually raises questions and it's interesting the thing about his program is there's a lot of him you know on different angles but i do not see many archaeologists who actually would question his theories being invited i haven't looked at everything but it's typical it's typical and in my time the archaeologists who were actually who had in the 80s Tuskovsky theory happened to be the mediocres those who actually had no ideas of them for themselves and in fact disappeared and vanished from archaeology they tried to thrive on some extraordinary theory the revision of the chronology of the dark age etc that's one of the things that he was trying to say there was a hiatus would you say though that some of these revisionist theories have value for instance the discovery of Gubekli Tepe in Turkey, I hear, has pushed back our thinking that, okay, agriculture existed like a couple of three to 4,000 years before we initially thought. Megalithic yeah. structures existed three to 4,000 years before we thought, right? I don't know, like, as we dig deeper into the Earth's crust and stuff like that, will we have more data points to suggest advanced human thinking is that more older than we actually thought? Because science is an effort in constantly having new hypotheses and having data points disprove that hypothesis. Do you think that some of these theories are being validated with some of the evidence that we're seeing like Gubekli Tepe? Well, I don't know about this particular site. I knew very well James Mellard, who discovered Chatel Huyuk, mm-hmm. which is one of the most extraordinary archaeological sites in the world. The dates are just incredible. I think it's six to 8,000 BC from memory. But the, the short thing, when Chatel Huyuk was discovered, it literally pushed the boundaries of knowledge of the development of the Near East by several thousands of years. And everything was different. Everything is different because of Chapel Hill, which is still excavated as we speak here. I think it's a question of approach. You should not dismiss easily any new idea, but you need to approach it in a very scientific manner and have the evidence. One of the criticisms from Mr. Hancock is that this evidence doesn't convince it. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it will trigger someone to discover something else. We can't just also be linear. That is, many scholars are very linear in the way they want archaeology to evolve. Mm. Archaeology, like science, evolves in leaps and returns and twists and goes backwards and forwards. That's the nature of knowledge acquisition and, in fact, of human history. There is not a linear evolution of how civilizations evolve. It's a back-and-forth movement, constant, in fact, between Mm. nations. You were talking about technologies being exchanged, but ideas, wars. Egyptian would conquer Lebanon, they would bring back the wood, yes, but also knowledge about plants. Even the writing system at one point landed in Sinai or etc., or the reverse, perhaps. Exchanges are extremely important. In fact, one of my colleagues, Professor Richard Wilkinson, who is the vice dean of Arizona, State University has created a, a journal called the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Interconnections that was in the mid around 10, which deals with this sort of problem because Egyptology was very close and is still very close to understanding the exchanges. He created that journal, which is a success, and I've contributed to it because it's a question of enlarging our views. I published an article about the name of an ancient Egyptian plant called Gash, which comes straight from India, literally from Sanskrit, and it travels <laughs> ancient Egyptian in vocabulary. You know, I can't remember the dates now, but the very early on, perhaps the Middle Kingdom, I can't remember. Uh, I, I suppose a question that, I mean, we've talked about how technologies come, why they're essential to countries, but how do we lose technologies? Because obviously you have the apocalyptics like Graham Hancock, you say nature comes and wipes it out. But what are some of the theories around, why did we forget how to build pyramids, for example? Like, do the people just die out? How do we lose technology? Because there are many ways to do things. This is true for Roman concrete. We, we still don't know how they made the concrete that can even resist the seawater. I've actually found two out of three ingredients of how to do ancient Egyptian varnish. This tripartite formula passed into the classic literature and then into the Renaissance. And then in the Renaissance, it continued to be used by master of the Renaissance. Original ingredients in ancient Egypt, the knowledge disappeared. There was wax and I discovered that there was pistachia resin and turpentine from the ancient Egyptian. I just published
published a little thing on this one of those things again which I, I could have published in more detail but yes I did publish it and announced that it, it was discovered we actually until 2009 and 10 we had forgotten of how ancient Egyptian varnishes were made and that prevented us to understand why many sarcophagi of museum were turning yellow because if you use pistachia resin the oxidization of the sun's ray turns a translucent resin into a yellow varnish the 21st dynasty sarcophagi which are yellow are not yellow originally it's because they were exposed at one point to some light perhaps after they were excavated and the oxidization of the resin makes them yellow you don't know the ingredient you can't and this discovery was important for conservative people taking care of conserving these pieces because now that they know that it's pistachio resin they can do the chemistry to preserve and, and return sarcophagus to the original the conspiracy theorist in me wonders whether that's a sort of anti-theft device you know <laughs> like sort of you know the sarcophagus has been taken out because it's turned yellow some of it can be true but most of it very often particularly when it doesn't come from professionals is groundless and without any evidence that's the difference really are you saying by the way that we fully understand the pyramid making process with today's no, we evidence don't. okay no okay. no absolutely not. okay no no so that's uh, absolutely not every year someone comes with something different. right right, right. that's quite interesting uh, the most accepted yeah. version is the one i've heard is about ramps going around the pyramid yeah i know a lot about the architecture of pyramids yeah. that's the actual facts of how they are made and yeah. their evolution about the technologies involved yeah. in their construction it's an end that's quite interesting as a premise that you've got this technology which is like thousands of years old and still humans struggle to understand how and why and whatever. Do you think that we're entering similar or type of technology with artificial intelligence today where some of the LLMs, when you actually make them and then train them, it's really hard to predict the output. It's quite unpredictable and it's very hard to understand as well how those weights and functions quite work out. Do you think it's quite similar it's also quite a black boxy type thing which artificial intelligence is also quite hard to understand i use artificial intelligence every day i've used it again this morning whether it's being chat but for practical reasons calculations and programming and you name it you can harness the beast for the time being you can ask them and they behave more and more in a human way in fact my post on linkedin today is about the fact i asked about whether it thought that it would get to a point where we could not distinguish could not know whether it was human or or not and it says yes it answered yes i'm getting to a point where another human being will not be able to know mm. whether i'm human or not it's so and whether it's conscious or not is almost not important at that point because if it's behaving exactly like a human being to the point that we can't distinguish it's a real fundamental question now where this is going to evolve is the big question how much power are we going to allow the ais to have it's a big question it's quite clear that the the power we already have on a daily basis is just extraordinary it's changing everything changing my company's direction and creativity and everything else. Now, whether we should be scared about it, well, you can be scared uh, about the fusion of the atom and uranium and nuclear bombs when we've been living with these new technologies for decades. Should we not be scared? I don't know, because when you know that Mr. Putin had thousands of nuclear warheads, we could be scared on a daily basis. We can be scared of everything, and including crossing the street. The question is more trying to harness the problem, control, and, and anticipate what it could do. This is why I've been one among those who I don't want AI to be in this country regulated too fast, particularly mm. to allow SMEs uh, to develop. But I definitely want regulations on matters of national security, whether it's anything touching the military or children's security or our security. That's the, exactly the reverse. The legislation should come very, very fast. For example, facial recognition, which mm. is now an issue because the police is using it as an alternative to ID cards. And ID cards have never been welcome in this country and are not. And in fact, I'm one of those who just signed with law Clement Jones and others, the petition to have the matter discussed in Parliament. And I haven't checked, but we were not far from 50,000 signatures, which, as you know, when it reached that, that number, then it would be debated in Parliament. So it's a question of understanding and balancing and following the evolution. But it is extremely exciting. What incredible help I got this week from artificial intelligence using the different you know, language models is just extraordinary. Really. The world is already not the same. Some people I know don't know about this. The general public doesn't 
realize that the world is already a very, very different place, particularly for professionals in technology. Do you think that creates the risk, though, of us kind of using technology mindlessly or sort of not being aware of its effects on us or even in a doomsday scenario, creating technologies that we can't manage because they're just too black boxed and we, we don't understand how to sort of un them, particularly with AI? Well, the two chemists, they ask AI to create dangerous molecules and they let the, the system run for a few hours. And at the end of it, there were several thousands of deadly SARS-like molecule or others. And they, they really got scared and they thought we can't keep that for ourselves. And they just, if you look on the internet, it's everywhere because they realized the, the power of destruction that we can be attached to the development of AI. What They flagged it and now people are looking into it. It's like anything, really. Anyone can also, you know, develop all sorts of chemical weapons at home with uh, base supermarket products or a bit of chemistry. And whether we do it or not is another question. And the context, the geopolitical context of one's country helps or doesn't help this sort of evolution. I mean, of course, I'm sure that in Ukraine right now, they're looking into any possibility to destroy the Russian army. They've done it because factually their, you know, their drones have actually are, are seemingly checking the very mighty and powerful Russian Navy. And this is incredible. But the, and, and Garba was mainly lost because of drones and these new technologies. Israeli technology lended to the Azeris, used with great efficiency by the Azeri army when the Armenians were not updated on this new type of warfare. Self-sufficient AI-driven weapons. I've written an article for the Financial Times about this, you know, which the Financial Times published, a letter in which they transform an article about the fact that from a moral point of view, we shouldn't allow a self-sufficient AI weapons to develop. Now, the answer of the military is that we need to keep up with what the others are doing. And then and then it's the endless circle of so, increase of weaponry, budget, money, market. I mean, you know, big companies making money and sugar. It's a bit like the advent of the atom bomb, isn't it? When you sort of had Oppenheimer who yeah. thought, I've created a technology that anybody can now destroy the world from their basement. The world was a very dangerous period for a long time. But then eventually, I think nations came to an agreement that mm. it's on our mutual interest to regulate this together. That's what I was asking, I think there should be a, a treaty of non-proliferation of mm. AI-driven weapons. And I think the FT understood that very well and they published my letter precisely for this because yeah. we realized dangerous it is. But there will always be people who only look at their self-interest and the profit they can make out of this new business. Of course, a soldier thinks like a soldier. A soldier wants more powerful weapon and this is what his job is. But the job of the politician is to tell him, well, you know what? No, we'd rather have less weapons for the peace of everybody and the security of the world. I mean, the world was a very, very violent place throughout the, the past several thousands of years. If you look at the Middle Age, it was awful what was happening in this country mm. where I and, and where yeah. in, in Europe. So on the one hand, yes, we're scared about these technologies, but there is an awareness, whether it's for the planet's environment or for the future of our children, because of podcasts like the one you're doing right now, knowledge is spread. People mm. reflect and they want to act. And the capacity to act is now is not anymore in the hands of a few. Millions of people have the capacity on a daily basis to do good in this world by supporting NGOs. By, it wasn't the case up to 100 years ago. People just didn't know where to start to do good. In fact, they were too busy tilling the soil for most of us in, in Europe. You know, agriculture was the main innovation. In the world, is a completely different place. Now, hobbies in this country and in France amount to every person almost in this country has a hobby. That is, by hobby, it can be something which is just for one's personal interest, but it's also being part of an NGO protecting the butterflies in your local area and that sort of thing. This didn't exist even several decades ago. The world is a very different place. We moan and complain of fear, but we forget about that after the First World War, there was the Spanish flu, which wiped out millions and, and you know, made my great-grandmother having lost her husband at Verdun and with two children in Versailles in this cold, cold winter of 1918-19 with no food, Spanish flu. And it, it is, we, we forget about the, all of this and rations after the Second World War and so on and so on. We have new problems like with the COVID because the world is a smaller place, because viruses can travel at the speed of light between one corner to the other in a matter of hours. We need to adapt. We need to understand. We need to be conscious of where we stand at this point in history to be able to forecast what's going to come. Even for the best politicians, it's very difficult forecasting anything. It's very problematic. One of the questions that you listed is, will the United States disappear one day? <laughs> well, uh, ultimately, everything disappears, I'm afraid. But it's only a matter of time. What time frame are we talking about? If it's a mm. question of time frame, yes, civilizations disappear and they transform. But I think instead of talking about disappearance, we can talk about transformation. Mm. AI is about to transform the world like we've never seen in a factual way. But it could be the good way. It could be a good way. And I wish it because the United States with its social disparities and 
its economic problem and the fracture which is increasing between the middle America and the rest could indeed get to a point of, if not civil war, at least secession of some states, for example, from the federal system. That's not simple. People who would want to follow Trump for in an adventure. I mean, a war of secession has happened in America. And those who think that nothing can happen again, or you're wrong because uh, history repeats it very often. But I pray that this doesn't happen. But if action is not taken to preserve democracy and the welfare of people, ultimately it leads people like Mr. Putin or Mr. Trump or even Mr. Boris Johnson to take advantage of the situation. And even worse, Mussolini's and Adolf Hitler's who thrive on the misery of post-war situations like we saw after the First World War. I mean, if the French had not humiliated the German as they did, Mr. Hitler would not have gone anywhere. But the anger, the resentment, the poverty fuels the extremism in every mm. form. And this is how wars and conflicts start. Do you think AI and blockchain and these technologies risk making these divisions worse or could they be a solution to them? We already see in America, if you work in the tech sector, you can earn a huge high salary. Whereas if you work in, I don't know, coal mining or in the Rust Belt, those places obviously switched from the Democrats to Trump because they've sort of collapsed. So are these technologies potentially going to make it worse? How do we prevent them making it worse? <laughs> well, blockchain for a start, in Africa is helping because of the cryptocurrencies is helping create local economies. I can't remember the name that crypto that Nigerians are using. It has a parity with the dollar and allows them to send money from here from the United Kingdom to Nigeria and back. Mm -hmm. These are the good side of it. In a area where having a bank account and having access to bank is not always possible. Decentralization of the financial system across telephones, whereby you can actually pay your neighbor just by sending a crypto from one phone to another. This is a great benefit of the blockchain technology to the African continent and contribute to its evolution. Now, for America, yes, of course, uh, Mr. Altman and Mr. Musk uh, would love to see an AI agency in the United States because it will certainly be easier for them to first wash their hands of the responsibility of what they've created. I imagine creating an AI agency with, like in Europe, thousands of pages of regulations, and then you clamp on the competition because all the SMEs will not be able to compete with the great companies. It's an oligopoly. reading the legal text and understanding it and paying the solicitors, lawyers, to deal with that. Well, this is the privilege of big companies. That's exactly what happened is happening in the EU right now. They produced this several thousands of pages of regulations before Europe has even one single AI capable of being a rival to that in uh, those in Silicon Valley. They've put literally the chariot, the, the, the carriage in front of the ox, as the French would say. And uh, because three or four thousand pages of text and then nothing to show for, even the CEOs of large companies are saying to Brussels, but you, you're completely mad. You're destroying the possibility for us to do anything. Now, add to this that President Macron has the brilliant idea that all French AI algorithm, all AI algorithm made in France should be in French to promote the francophonie. Uh, it's like <laughs> shooting yourself in the foot because if companies have to program things in French, well, it's not the rest of the world that's going to use them. So on the one hand, a heavy regulation. On the other hand, a text in the foreign language that most people in this world don't understand. It's, it's not the proper way. But no, it's, it's a question to answer, to go back to your original question, the question of how we can make the people benefit. I think it's already extraordinary that, in effect, to be fair, that Google and Microsoft and other companies are, are putting, are making available to us the incredible power of their language models and Bing chat, stability and Bard. Just one other question for me on just on this is, you can see different states taking different approaches. The United States' history is all about free enterprise and risk ventures and China's taking this very state-driven model and I presume in between people are taking all sorts to different flavors. Do you think that's how countries will approach this? Some will say it's state-driven and owned and others will allow AI to explode. And what are some of the differences you see? We have four schools right now. Let's start from the East. The Chinese are allowing companies to develop their AI without too much state intervention, but on one condition, that any AI algorithm encompasses socialist values. This is, that's interesting. That's their approach. In Europe, they decided to do the EU AI Act and crush everybody on the thousands of pages of regulation. <laughs> in the UK, a third approach, which a lot of people, even in this country, not everybody agrees, but the government's position, and it's on my conclusion, we should not regulate from top to bottom. Let the bottom AI grow, create rules, rules which can be uh, of practice, which can be transformed in standards. We're very good at selling our standards in the UK. We sold for £570 million last year or something like this. And then from these standards, ultimately regulate when we really understand what's going on. That's 
seems to be a very reasonable approach. The difference I have with the government is that we're, at least I don't know what it's really doing right now, and there will be a very big meeting in Bletchley Park very soon, is about, as I said earlier, national security. For me, we need to do something. And then the Americans are not sure what they want to do. They're debating it. The Senate and Congress are not in agreement with what should be done. Then there was a private hearing of, in the Senate, I think, with senators with behind closed doors where Mr. Musk and Mr. Altman, I don't know, Mr. Zuckerberg was there, about what should be done, which infuriated a lot of people because that sort of debate should be public. But basically, with the general idea of creating an AI agency in the US, and Senator Rosenberg Blumenthal, who is very experienced, warned about the creation of AI, of any agency, unless it's extremely well-funded and controlled, it tends to do exactly the opposite of what it's meant to be. So that was one warning. But now I've seen his later paper, and he seems to rally this sort of idea. So maybe we're going to see the United States of America make the mistake, in my opinion, to create an AI agency that will not benefit most companies. Now, again, they may take a more balanced approach. Things which are dangerous should be regulated, but I don't think so. I think it's maybe a question of stages. We'll see. In any case, they haven't yet decided and Mm. they haven't come up with a US AI act. But you know what, Christian, in terms of the standards you talked about, which is your approach that you're advising the government of the UK, are we planning to enforce these standards? Like, what do you mean by standards? Standards of what exactly? And is this enforceable, non enforceable? You have the British standard, VSI. British standards are used across the world. Why? Because an an Mm -hmm. institution that regulates. In this country, there's a long tradition of, of good practice and, and regulated practice. This is very mm-hmm. much an English approach to the problem. Helps kind of control organized and colonies as well. I guess that's where it comes well, from. Well, yes. <laughs> there was the British mean time. It's, it's, I understand what you're saying. That was once upon a time. And, and I think now with the Commonwealth, we're perhaps in a different position. And But the thing is, uh, British standards are the base rules by which, for example, many cement companies in the UAE are very proud to say that we respect 881, which is a standard mm-hmm. test for cement. And this goes into for various industries because a lot of care has been taken to define what is the good practice, how it should be done properly. And then you can sell the standard. Now, the Japanese have their own GIS, Japanese, or the American ASTM, American mm-hmm. standards. It's something which is a tool to work. And the advantage is it's not an obligation. It's a bit like ISO 9001. You mm-hmm. have the choice to have your company being accredited and have the label ISO 9001, which gives you a, a good reputation. It makes your clients want to work with you because they know that you've been through a rigorous process of proving that what you're doing follows some rules. That's what I meant. In terms of these standards, technically speaking, what it would standardize? Like, is it the training, labeling, or what exactly would the standards be composed? For a start, I think the standards do not exist as far as mm-hmm. I know. When the first thing they would need to tackle are biases in algorithms, mm-hmm. gender, race, sexuality, religion, and whatever you name it. There, there should be a rule that you mm. you cannot insert in the algorithm, for example, for kids, promoting one ideology or one religion, one mm. racial bias without declaring who creates what is another topic. But you need to have standards of how you program. And in fact, the NHS has a very mm. good AI text about the values they want to see in their algorithm. Exemplary, as a matter of fact, they, they are pioneers. The Ministry of Defense, I mean, there are 15 pages white paper on AI and the principle they use. It's not yet standards. Everybody is trying to define what are the good ways to practice something. It's a bit like the rules of the game. And if there are no rules, then everybody can do anything and there are abuses and crimes in the end. It's kind of two things that I think would be interesting in that context. That There's a lot of pushback against social media companies like Google and Facebook about how they influence their users and how they either people on the platform can influence them or they themselves influence them. And that can be political, ideological, commercial, whatever. So there's lots of trust in big private or even government institutions. At the same time, there's a sort of anti-globalism going on where people are pushing back against IMF, against EU and Dutch farmers and all the rest of it, right? We seem to be having this loss of faith in anything big, big oil, big tech, whatever. And also this kind of, well, we don't want to be part of the global system. We want to be away from it because we don't trust the decisions that those guys make work at a national. How does this come together with those themes going on? We have a lot of very difficult to make and a, lo- a lot of wisdom and a lot of balance. Judgment is about being able to balance a very complex set of data. For example, in justice is reserved to highly trained professionals who struggle very often, even after several decades of judging how to judge something. One of my close cousins is a former judge in this country, and he was telling me that even after four decades of judging in the high court, there were cases where he needed to consult his colleagues because it's extremely difficult. And I think this is generally the path of humanity. We have an enormous problem in balancing things. 
nations. You just need to look what's going on in Israel and Palestine today. No matter what, it's a human disaster. Whoever is right on one side or on the other and so on, the situation is a nightmare and so many innocents died for it. People who had not a clue about the political situation on either side because some were on holidays like many tourists or many locals. It's a failure of ours to be able to talk and to mm. find and, and then now it will bring more hate, more resentment, more extremism and it's an endless wheel of destruction. It's very sad. But the history of the current course of humanity, even the United States, I mean if I was going to say something to the United States, you want to lead. Well, lead in kindness and that's not forgetting about USA. USA does a lot of things and even including is useful for political reasons. We know all of this. But I think civilizations right now should consider and think in a global term. There is no more boundaries. You could be in Jakarta, you could be, you know, across the planet. It doesn't matter. Intelligence is distributed. And this is what those who favor blockchain and love mm. blockchain like it because it decentralizes everything. And because the Bitcoin, no matter what, is the first decentralized payment system where you can, apart from the fact that is a currency mm. where I pay you, you pay me. It's the first time that we don't need a middle bank, middleman to be able to send money from A to B. And this is what the world asks. But on the other hand, if it wasn't for Google and Microsoft, I could not have done my job today because I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to them for having created what they're creating, developing what they're developing and making it free, freely available. That's mm. the amazing thing. It's an interesting question about globalism benefiting people like in Africa, in Latin America, where they have unstable economies, a globalized crypto marketplace allows them to spend and save, etc. Versus globalism where some shadowy, unaccountable organizations control everyone. And kind of how we how we make formal work rather than the latter becoming the sort of reality, which is a sort of dystopian worldview that sort of people have. As I said earlier on, we were talking about the ancient civilization and the back and forth movement. It's a pendulum. We go from one extreme to another constantly and not doing always the right thing one way or another. But there is a progress. President Roosevelt once said in a language which is now outdated, you can try to stop civilization, but you cannot prevent it to evolve or something of the like. Mm. You, you can slow down, you can delay it, but you can't prevent it to evolve. At, at that time, the notion of civilization had the colonialist you know, side mm. to it and the, the yeah, mentalities yeah. were different. But mm. fundamentally, it's true. It's exactly yeah. that. And yeah. I, I like the fact in England, for example, in the UK, the diversity of nations living in this country make creates such a richness. I live in a part in West London where we have every nation of the world is here from every culture. And it's and I tell you what, Polish supermarkets are fabulous. If you've never been into a Polish supermarket, <laughs> go there. They're very serious. They're not the people who smile much. And that's my Polish friends mock themselves about the fact that they have an Eastern attitude towards life, which is very different. But they're supermarket fabulous. And I'm so <laughs> great. and so happy we have Poles in this country, for example. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Christian, what's your current thoughts on crypto and blockchain? Because for me, it feels that it hasn't left the lab in a lot of ways in terms of mass adoption, in terms of real usage. Like there were a lot of promises, obviously the Bitcoin standard and the white paper written by Satoshi more than a decade ago now is clearly remarkable in terms of the technology and the complexity of it and the idea of it, right? And you saw like a quite a, like two crypto booms in the last eight years, four years apart. The recent one during the pandemic when everyone was sitting at home and buying a lot of NFTs and Bitcoins. Most of the NFT, the Bitcoin folks were like, oh, this is a hedge against inflation. You know, it's great. Yada, yada, yada. So much promises. But then now everything's down. Crypto's gone again. It's a wash. I've got a bit of portfolio and it's like, I'm not even looking at it. I'm so ashamed of it. You know, it's all in the red, right? What's your sort of current thoughts right now on where this is and where it's going in terms of crypto? Well, again, fortunate to be a historian or part yeah. historian, having a, a very wide view of the money. Amazing. This year in at Spink in London, something which most Egyptologists, if nearly all Egyptologists didn't notice is that there was the first coin ever minted in ancient Egypt in gold sold at Spink with mm-hmm. an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic term for gold. Mm-hmm. And it was made by Pharaoh Niktanebo II at the time when he was in contact with the Greek. I immediately snatched the catalog if not to look at it. And, and because it's the birth, it was the birth of a new system pay things. Till then, ancient Egyptian was economy was functioning with barter. You give me two fishes, I give you, uh, mm, you know, something yeah. else and so on and everything. They had their own measure and it was called the Deben. They had also other measures. But till then, it was exchange, barter. And then suddenly the Greek come with their coins, which they, God knows who had the idea first and I'm sure that debate. And then it 
evolves, it evolves across time. It takes so many forms. You may not be aware, for example, that Sir Isaac Newton, who was actually the director of the Mint in this country, first he wrote his Principia Mathematica in Cambridge, and then and not the other great work he would publish 18 years later. But in between, he was given the governorship at the Tower of London of the Mint. And he, he actually restructured the machines. He recalled all the money of England so that they couldn't be filed. I think he put crenellation around so that people could not file the silver because it was the, the, the English coins were, were filed and then the silver was transformed in Europe and other coins was used to buy the UK coins. Which were, and then at that point, it was a revolution. I mean, the king was so grateful to Sir Isaac for doing this because he restructured the economy. Now, with Bitcoin, mm. it's again the pendulum. If you had bought some coins in 2017, like when I started to be in this industry, I w- it was £1,000 coin at the time, €1,000. <laughs> and today, it, no matter what, it's still 22000 or something, mm. 24000 yeah. I haven't looked at those prices. It, it was a very good investment. Now it goes up, it goes down. What's important is that the system exists. Some states have started to adopt it as a, an alternative national currency. There's not a week when you can you don't hear that a, a new usage of the Bitcoin, mm. particularly with other cryptos, is being made. So we need to take some distance. It seems close. Mm. Yes, there have been crashes of the Bitcoin and a lot of people lost a lot of money. But if we take some distance, the question is, where will currencies evolve? Some say central bank, you know, GBDCs, and they say, yeah. you know, the bank part. It's very difficult to know. But in my opinion, the point about cryptocurrency is that they are decentralized mm. and that gives people in the remotest part of Africa a capacity to barter anymore, but yeah. really have some the power to buy something with something that someone else across the globe is using. If mm. you're in Tanzania today and you've got some Bitcoins, you can send them to Laos or China. Well, that is new. No matter what, that is new. And they're catching. I mean, the Tanzanian, for example, internet network. I mean, you can be in a safari in the middle of nowhere and you can actually talk to someone in London as if you're just a few yards or a few hundreds of meters away. We don't realize that Tanzania has better road system apparently than the UK now in terms of quality. And that's because the Africans are evolving. Nobody notices mm. in the African country is difficult to keep up with what everybody else is doing. Or which is the first government in the world which has really successfully used and is using a blockchain at national level. The Philippines have the best citizen blockchain national system in the world with every Filipino citizen has on his telephone all the administrative requirement that that person needs to do for whatever reason is on one single app connected to the government. And they're leading. They're giving us lessons about how to use the blockchain technology. Do you think people notice? What I'm saying right now is ignored by like 95%. You know. It's quite interesting. We had the authors who wrote Why Nations Fail mm. on the podcast previously and they talked about inclusive versus exclusive institutions. A lot of these developing countries struggle because their governments and banks are exclusive as in yep. they do for their benefit and not for them, right? Whereas it seems like blockchain and crypto is kind of transforming the society from the ground up where exactly. you can circumvent these corrupt institutions. Fascinating. It's exactly that. It's empowering everybody to do something. I mean, banks, well, you look at the history of banks from the Rothschilds to now, it's always once you occupy a monopoly, this is what the Rothschild occupied after the Battle of Waterloo. We know how they made their money and enjoyed it for quite a long time and being even sitting on the board of the Bank of England for quite a long time. Of course, if you're in a position of dominance and monopoly, you will reap the position of power you have. But if you think what banks don't like precisely is that the power is distributed to everybody and that everyone can... I mean, French banks, I've lived in France so many years, are terrible, as a matter of fact, for that. And they're in the 80s, 90s, and early in 2000, were hit on the fingers by the president of France himself, very often saying, you can't keep abusing customers like this. You need to have better standards. If you can bypass this by any way, uh, of course, it's not going to make a lot of people happy, but it's going to make millions of others extremely happy. The world is evolving. Connectivity and the capacity to exchange, whether it's money or ideas, is the future. It's exactly that. The the world is shrinking. We really can talk to each other at the speed and quality of image like what we're doing right now. It's a miracle of technology. We were getting accustomed to it. I've seen an Englishman a few days ago when I was talking to my wife on WhatsApp, having his eye open, literally open, even though he's more, well, he's, he was in his 80s. He had never seen it before. 
we take it for granted because we're in the technology world. We we're always after the latest technologies. Mm. But a lot of people in this country have not a clue how to use it. My mother struggles to use an Android phone. She just cannot call me. It's too complicated. Just a, another question I had was there's people like Peter Thiel, for example, who kind of says, actually, we're innovating less now than we were oh. before because electricity was a much bigger thing than the internet, for example. Where do you think this current crop of technologies, you know, metaverse, AI, blockchain, ranks in? Are, are these as transformative as electricity? Yes, yeah. it's part of the evolution of the world. Whether it's Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, or whether it's electricity, machines, first computers, and now AI, and so on, so on. We are witnessing the century of enlightenment extending to a point. During the century of enlightenment, all these machines appear, automation, weaving machines. I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, I should know, because we've been at the forefront of machine development, improving society and industrial revolution, like perhaps no other society in this country. And I'm very proud to be a part of it, because I like the idea that we're trying to do something new. And myself, I was the first person to hash a printed book and put it on the blockchain to protect the IP and the RSA made an article and I never thought in my lifetime I would actually make an innovation mm. like this but this is part of improvement and I'm not sure most people don't get why would we transform the entire content of a book in an algorithm what's the point well you can go to court and say that the intellectual property that is the content of the book was mine at a given time and I can prove that technology needs not only to be developed but understood it's not because we as technologists understand how something works that people follow they don't most people still struggle with their phone when they have a phone. And many people I hear don't want to hear about the phone. Someone I know who lives in nearby was telling me I was happier in the 70s and the 80s when I was young when we had no telephone. It's too, <laughs> there's too much technology in our lives. In fact, I've been saying that the best technologies are those which we don't see or don't use. I mean, we use our phones much more. It should be much more easy, much more discreet. I wrote an article that there's nothing that can beat the beauty of a garden. Of course, it's an extreme statement, but we have a long way to go to emulate nature and be able to have the grace and elegance and beauty and harmony of a garden created by nature, whether we are in it or not. You know, our phones are, may, an iPhone may be very beautiful, but and very simple. I've rarely seen anyone putting it in a frame and on the wall, you know, like the, the painting I have here. You see the corner of a Tuscan landscape. Well, it gives us pleasure every day. I don't think my wife's iPhone gives her really great pleasure every day, <laughs> even though she paid too much for it, in my opinion. But that's uh, Not everybody would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It is the effects of technology, right, on our soul, on our minds, on our bodies, where I sort of disagree in a lot of ways with Peter Thiel is that you sometimes you need a bit of incremental innovation just for society and humans to catch up before radical innovations come in. It's actually better to have incremental, incremental, then radical, then incremental, 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 then again, radical, you know, so you're like a bit kind of catching up or it's else you're, you're yeah, kind of oh, super chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's always like a human society and laws catching up to technology. Too much of that and you kill the baby in the cradle in a lot of ways, like what Europe is doing with AI and to less of that, you find it hard to adapt. But I think it's been an hour and uh, I would like to start wrapping up. I wanted to ask you before we go, Christian, I saw in your website that you're doing some interesting things at Projectus where you guys are building some proprietary tech in relation to classification knowledge and philosophy of the internet. Like, are you able to share on what, what are the scope of some of these proprietary tech? And did, did you make the classification? I did, yeah. I just read it on your website, well, the classification uh, uh, knowledge. A long yeah. time ago, I created yeah. a, what many people consider the best classification of sciences in the history of mankind, and okay. nobody cares. Yeah. I belong to the most exclusive club and maybe one of the most prestigious in history. Plato was one of the yeah. first to do so. Jeremy Bentham maybe, was another. Yeah. Nobody cares except the Wikipedia page and a few specialist scholars who actually say that classification of sciences is one of the most esoteric and difficult topics in the world. I might use it now with AI to mm. actually yeah. structure things. But it's like everything. You know, there's a use. I have my own blockchain since uh, mm. 24 hours. It's a very simple blockchain, but it will be connected to the certification system I've developed for companies to certify documents. It's about trying to develop applications which are useful. AI is more my public service. I've been almost six years mm. in Parliament talking mm. about the ethics of AI. I never got one penny and I mentioned it until a few weeks ago and then suddenly <laughs> someone came and offered me a job as a judge for an AI competition. But otherwise, 
because no, because it's not. I'm on the blockchain side. The lockdown has delayed many projects, including one that I had with the police to catch a certain type of criminals. Lockdown and COVID has been very destructive from that point of view, but maybe for the best. Now everything, as I said, Projectus Consultants. I've already sent the papers to companies' house to change the name of the companies from Projectus Consultants to Projectus Technologies and Consulting. The announcement will be made on LinkedIn anytime because once we have our first client, I will consider that the major technology we develop, which is another order than the small blockchain I developed myself. The fact that when people are going to learn that mm. with Python and PyCharm, I've actually been able to code my own blockchain and see it function on projectis.co.uk, which is uh, the mm. website of my company. It's much better for them to understand I don't only talk about blockchain or have theoretical design views. Like, for example, I designed yeah. Secure Stamp, I designed the architecture, which was very quickly coded by a professional. It's mm. a different thing for them to know that I actually coded my own blockchain, even if it's not a blockchain. It doesn't require the level of technicity that some gigantic blockchains like Ethereum and others yeah. have. For me, it's about certifying and recording the certification mm. of blockchain hashes for documents. So we're talking of another order uh, of technology. That's not, yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. Looking forward to some of your work. There is one question I had in mind, and and probably this will be our last question. But since your family has been so much involved in statecraft, I thought that yeah. I have to ask this. You know how for ancient civilizations, you had nomadic people, right? Nomadic people kind of settle down. They form communities, tribes or communal throughout the Middle Ages. And even until the Enlightenment period, you had the empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarians, the French, the British Empire. And that collapsed and balkanized into the concept of nation state the Republic of Armenia, the Republic of Bangladesh, the Republic of Pakistan, this and that. I don't know if you've read the book and, and the works of Balaji Srinivasan, who recently came up with this book called The Network State, where people on the internet can actually create states because we share the same ideals, we share the same thinking, so we can get money together, raise money together, and land comes last. The idea that the blockchain and other consensus mechanisms enables us to create states in the network. Where do you see statecraft going towards this whole evolution from like hunter-gatherers, nothing nomadic people, all the way to network states on the internet? Like, do you have any sort of thoughts there? I mean, what you're asking is about the evolution of statehood. Yeah, correct. And it's a rather important yeah. question. I'm happy we're finishing with this. Yeah. You know that someone has already created a passport. There is an organization which has created a blockchain, a decentralized passport for an international ID which has nothing to do with states and which would give an ID. I can't remember the name of it. And sometimes you have pioneers, you have people who have a vision. And of course, and I think their ID is using by the United Nations, perhaps for refugee camps or something like that. But the sure thing is we're at the beginning of what may follow in the very way we conceive this world. And mm. in Europe, it's already a problem for many European citizens who are of multiple citizenship, European citizenship. They don't feel entirely French, entirely Italian. Italian, Italian, Spanish, mm -hmm. but they feel European. Correct. And Europe will have to upgrade one at one point or another to a European passport. With a bit in, in ancient times, you know, in Ottoman Empire, you couldn't go from one city to another without what was called a teskere, which was a passport to travel from one place to another, and there were controls everywhere. Thank God in Turkey and it doesn't exist anymore. But mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that we are taking boundaries down. John Lennon in his famous song referred to that. Can you imagine a world without boundaries? And I, I perfectly can. <laughs> and I think it would bring peace. And I think it would be, allow people to have less conflicts and in, in, and in this respect. But think about Palestine. Palestinians have their share of responsibility what's going on in Israel too. But the confining 2.3 million in such a small part of the world and having a wall around it is a rather inhuman way of whatever reasons, for whatever will let the Israelis do that. And, and it's not right. We, it shouldn't be like this. You can't prevent people to travel. You can't prevent them to move. But there are other responsibilities. On, you know, we could endlessly debate this. But it's just a principle. It's not right to the, the Berlin Wall, for example. I mean, we're so happy it was taken down. Walls or the Mexican Wall that Mr. Trump wants to build in Mexico. It's wrong. It's it's completely wrong. When on top of that, the United States is made of migrants. Like it's it's right. You should allow people to to express themselves, to travel, to go from one place to another. If you don't, then you just marginalize people. You prevent them to evolve, and we deprive ourselves of talents as well. I suppose it becomes a question of 
rather than what is the right politics for this piece of land, it's sort of politics, community, whatever becomes detached from land and it kind of just becomes across the world almost. So there's a former prime minister of Australia and he was explaining sort of Brexit and stuff and he said it's a conflict in his mind between the somewheres and the anywheres, sort of people who can live anywhere and people who have to live somewhere and the sort of division that's arising because of that. And I suppose what you're talking about, we sort of bring the somewheres into anywheres and anyone kind of benefits from that is sort of the direction of travel, if you like. Immigration is is an extremely difficult topic. For example, which really got fed up with the French for not allowing Gabonese citizens to travel to France and get visas. So what did they do? From one day to another, they slammed the door of the Francophonie and told the French not only to go somewhere else, but that they would switch to the English language from one day to another. Powerful were their, their fair resentment that they, French people, could come to Gabon and Gabonese could not go the, the opposite direction. You have to put yourself in the shoes of everybody. But of course, it's a difficult with the, we see the migration flow movements across Europe, which are a headache for politicians. It's not an easy topic. And the world is not a fair place. And not everybody can travel fairly. Visas are not given. Most citizens in Europe don't realize that for many countries, for them to come to Europe, consulates don't always give visas. And this was the case for Armenia. When I was living in Armenia for, for years, I could see that many Armenians were not allowed to travel to France, for example, on, on a variety of reasons. And then it changed. And then when the French state realized that the Armenians would just wanted to come and go back, most of them. It's a question of understanding the other, allowing the prosperity of one country. The tactic for Armenia was we're going to make them, we're going to make Armenia a better place until such time as Armenians don't want to leave Armenia. So many, mm-hmm. because many left. And in a way, this is what happened. Visas were given more easily. When I was telling people in Europe that, you know, Armenians can't come and travel to Europe so easily, the, their eyes were wide open. We don't realize, you know, the thing politicians don't talk about easily because it's embarrassing. If you can't open your borders and welcome everybody in, in five minutes either, it's extremely complex. It's an evolution. But yeah. ultimately, you do not leave your country. You do not leave your home and your house and your village if you're happy mm-hmm. about your country and, and you, you're prosperous. I and mean, many people ask me because I come from, an, you know, the nobility, the Armenian nobility. And on the other hand, my grandfather created a republic because we also understood that the system, the a kingdom was not possible. And when people ask me, which is the best system between a monarchy or constitutional mm-hmm. monarchy or public, my answer is very simple. It's the system that makes people happy, prosperous and secure. Mm-hmm. Or And you can yeah. put it in the rose. It's like a black cat, politi- white cat, whatever catches mice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's you know, this is why he's a, he was a founding father, one well, of the founding fathers of the Republic of Armenia. Mm-hmm. Even though he was a nobleman, he decided to create a republic because he had the interest of Armenians at heart before, you know, the privileges that he could get as a nobleman if as some king of Armenia was uh, or a kingdom was recreated. That's about whether you care about people or you don't, whether you care mm-hmm. about their welfare. I mean, if you can't make them happy, at mm-hmm. least make them prosperous and secure. Yeah. And this is what a lot of politicians don't understand. So the system is almost irrelevant. It's a question of how much you achieve, how far do you go into achieving making this economy in this country today prosperous when we're going to see now the Brexit treaties being implemented in 2024. We're going to get another shock. I'm, I'm almost sure, another mm. economic shock. So what are we going to do for that? What are we going to do for the northern part of England or the people who haven't got uh, access to as much money as there is in London and are removed from the possibility of finding you know, better jobs? It's, it's going to be hard. And, and that's what the politicians need to answer. It doesn't matter which party you are. You should be taking care of people. And that's valid for the rest of the world. This is why giving to other countries for them to be prosperous is a good thing. But it needs to be done in an intelligent way. Otherwise, people pocket it and go away with it and spend it in incredible ways. I'm thinking about this Vatican bishop who was discovered having a villa in Brazil, which he had funded with the money from the Children's Hospital of Milan, of which he had the responsibility. Okay, this is this is a bolder funny. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's terrible. On the other hand, it's so grotesque and, and extreme that you think some people will not, you know, prevent mm. themselves or restrain themselves from doing the most horrendous things in this life for their own private uses. Politicians across the world have the responsibility of making the nation prosperous, wealthy, and if possible, happy. A big task. Yeah. One thing that definitely comes from you, Christian, is, is this optimism that, you know, we've had challenges and yes, it could go bad, but we've been through difficult periods. And actually, I think you are optimistic 
in tone about the future of technology and that we will find a way to make this work for our benefit. I'm more realistic, actually. It's a bit like what's happening in Armenia right now. I had forecasted almost every step all the way to the end, including the very day at which the Azeris would attack. People didn't consult me. I tried to say that several times and people Mm. don't always listen to what you say. Like they didn't listen to my father when he told the Prime Minister of Lebanon in the 1950s that the country would be divided in probably a bloodbath and he was dismissed. Listening is a difficult thing. And and on which basis? Why would you listen to one person or another? This is where judgment comes from. It's exactly, we're going back to, to what we're talking about science originally. Where is the border between credibility and incredulity or fantasy? This is where human beings, you are here, both of you asking me one of the most interesting set of questions I've been asked in my lifetime, if not the most interesting <laughs> of questions. But you actually are looking at it from an overall point of view. You are trying to make sense of the world in which we are and whether your background you know, and your origin have nothing to do with the issue. I could be Serbo-Croat, you could be Swedish, even though you don't look like it, to be fair. But the fact is, it's about trying to make sense of human condition, trying to understand why civilizations and religions have different points of view and trying to unite this as opposed to divide. And people, if, if you ask me, what do I think about the evolution of the United States? Well, the pessimistic of me would say, well, considering that human beings have a tendency to division, we could probably forecast that the union will split at one point or another. And then the optimistic part of me would think, well, maybe with technology, knowledge, welfare, and new, te- you know, new energy resources, and understanding that we cannot allow people not to have access to health systems and medical care. Well, if this is understood, we might avoid some dramatic social disturbances. You can sum the whole thing very simply. If we're not kind to each other, and if we don't try to empathize with people everywhere across the globe, we're going to go nowhere. We're going to have more wars, more divisions, more bloodbath like, like we're seeing in Israel and Palestine. And it really saddens me, I'll tell you. I mean, what happened, Israelis were on the other side and, you know, gave weapons to the Azeris to crush the Armenians. Mm. But I, I still feel that it's terrible what happened to them and that the Palestinians should not have done something like this. But then the Palestinians would argue, but yes, and it's on like so we need to talk to our enemies and respect our enemies and sit down at the table of our enemies because it's the only solution and i've been asking for the armenians to talk to the turks for a long long time because mm. it's the only way the only way you can end this my family has waged war for 300 years in Gal. imagine mm. or more so we we know about the, the, the endless and it's depressing to see that in 2023 what my ancestor was doing in 1723 you know okay. is exactly the same yeah. And the famous wars of Beg, every Armenian could tell you about about it. And yeah, we were fighting at the time against Turkey. Where does it stop? Where does it end? You know, we see history repeating itself yeah. constantly in the wrong way in that direction. So let's try to make it a better way. And like Mr. President Obama was saying, there's a right side of history and the wrong side of history in a simplistic way. But there was a point there. Do you want to be part of a world where every nation, every culture is under one roof? Or do we want to continue because this one is of this religion and the other one is this culture? to divide ourselves. No, it's not right. It will never bring peace. We'll never be happy like this. And in the meantime, we'll destroy the planet because nobody, everybody talks about Ukraine, but I don't tell you about the ecological devastations that all this shelling is doing across the countryside. And we don't care about the animals. We don't care about the insects. There's no importance whatsoever. You know, we, we people don't think yeah. about this. It's like a pendulum in a lot of ways, history, like you said. It's been great having you, Christian, kind of ended there. Maybe we should have another one of these sessions, you know, maybe offline as well. It's certainly, it's certainly Let's been... Meet. Let's meet in London. Let's have, let's have a tea. I think that would be amazing. We could spend an entire afternoon about Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> let's try to do something that has yeah, an impact. Absolutely. Whatever we do, if it has, it doesn't change anything, then it's yeah, just absolutely. Agree. Thank you for having me, and it's been uh, very interesting. I must say, from my part, a bit, very different what I usually do. I, yeah. I'm asked about technology. I'm asked about Egyptology, but this ties at another. Combine all those worlds together. Actually, yeah, really does. Yeah, brilliant. I'm sure the listeners are going to have a good time as well. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Thank you both and have a great time. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.